Welcome to the RazorWire podcast, where we discuss all things in the information security and cybersecurity world. From current events and trends, through to commentary from experts in the field, providing vital advisory on what it is to work in the information security and cybersecurity space. Hello and welcome to another edition of the RazorWire podcast. Um, today we are going to be discussing intelligence, the sharing of intelligence, collaboration of intelligence, the good things that we experience in this industry around intelligence and maybe some of the bad things too. Um, I have two fantastic guests, one of which you've definitely seen before, Richard Cassidy. Hello everybody, uh, good to be back James. Thank you so much as always for uh, having me on, on these wonderful podcasts uh, I promise to uh, not waffle as much as I did in the last one, although I heard it was well-received. And uh, yeah, looking forward to getting into this one. Fantastic. And we also have Josh Davis. Josh, you want to introduce yourself to those who might not know, since people probably know who Richard is already? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, pleasure pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to this discussion. My name is Josh Davis. You already said that, but I am started my life in security as a security analyst. Um, so done some work in incident response and, and threat hunting. So working as an analyst, but working really closely with the threat research and intelligence teams in order to, to you know, find those, those novel or unknown unknown attacks. Um, now in my current life, I'm a product manager uh, for LitLogic, who are a managed detection and response uh, company. Fantastic. And, and welcome to your uh, inaugural podcast. Hopefully there'll be some more down the line. Um, Brilliant. So intelligence, intelligence is the cornerstone of our civilization in many respects. Uh, some say it's fire. Some say it's, you know, our ability to fiddle with tools. All absolutely correct, of course. But one of the key things our species is having to do on a, well, daily basis, an hourly basis and, and on a regular time scale is the application of intelligence and the utilization of intelligence. And I don't mean kind of like thinking, although obviously, you know, that's quite important. Um, we're talking about taking data or information or both. They're basically the same thing. And then utilizing that in your decision making to come up with either a plan of action or a new method of doing something or in essence, utilizing that for gain. I suppose is probably the best way to describe it. Most forms of intelligence that most people would have would have come across these days is things like military intelligence. It's very easy to discuss that kind of stuff because, as, as we said in the last podcast with the Sun Tzu quote, if you know your enemies and you know yourself, then you're going to win every single situation. And this is kind of the important thing in security as well. Um, if you don't understand what you're trying to secure or you don't understand the background or the threats against what you're trying to secure, the organization that you're trying to secure, whatever it may well be, then you're going to come a little bit of a cropper or at least you're going to have a harder time securing what it is you're trying to secure, be it a data set, be it a revenue stream, be it an organization from internal threats, external threats. It's a really important part of information security in general. And I think it's very important that we discuss intelligence as a, as a, a component part of security, but also how we can go forward and maybe utilize our intelligence a lot better, and a lot easier between vendors, consultants, security professionals, organizations to maybe build a, a, a set of intelligence that we can actually use to kind of protect the whole. Because we are living in very divisive times at the moment 
economically, things are getting difficult. There's obviously all the problems that are going on in various parts of the world who shall remain nameless at this moment in time, but we all know who they are. First question really is, let's, let's, let's start with you, Richard. You're the intelligence guy here who's lived and breathed this one for as long as he can remember. What's intelligence to you? What, what do you define as intelligence? Yeah, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, you know, and a lot of organizations will have felt that this has become a fairly changeable term to define over the past, you know, however many years, possibly decades. Uh, for me, I think there's always been one constant about intelligence, right? Intelligence is any piece of data that allows me to protect my resources, be they digital assets, and in the modern world of cybersecurity, also my human assets. So, so my key users and people in the business that you know I rely on to to make sure we can transact. And so, where that comes from, you know, is largely relevant to this podcast. But there are lots of sources outside of your traditional data feeds, which we'll talk about later. But that's it in a nutshell. It's it's data that allows me to protect my assets, both digital and human. Fantastic, Josh. Go. Yeah, sure. So just to kind of build on that that strong foundation, I find that threat intelligence is often one of the things that can be quite overlooked when you're looking to do your, your security strategy. You, know, you look at the, the, the shiny tools and the capabilities and features that they have, um, but threat intelligence is really what drives all those. If they don't know what to look for and what to make assessments on you know, using the data that they have and the data that they're scrutinizing, then it's, it's not going to work. So the analogy I often use when, when trying to make people understand the, the relevance is the threat intelligence is, is like the fuel that drives you forward. It means that you can realize the potential of your, your security programs, whether it's the tooling or the people, enabling them to go and find these things as quickly as, and effectively um, as possible. Uh, but the interesting thing about this fuel is you can't just buy one big you know, stockpile of it and leave it in the, gar- in the, in the back of your garage. You need to constantly be making this you know, every day. It's a constant evolving type of fuel um, that, that has to keep pace with, as we all know, the, the ever-changing threat landscape. So, James, if I, if I interject there, just again, to build on what Josh has said. And, and Josh, we've got a common history. I, I worked at Logic for about three and a half years, um, helped build the sock out of Cardiff, which I, no doubt you're, you're running in, but it's a, it's a great uh, sock and some great people there. So um, anyway, but let's, let's talk about threat intelligence. Is it a product or is it a process? Right? And I, I think in my decades in cybersecurity, too many organizations see it as a product. There's something they consume that hopefully gives them, and hope being the word, which is not a strategy, an outcome. Um, and too many fail to understand that actually threat intelligence is a process. And, and we'll go into that throughout the podcast. But you have to understand it's how you use that data that's going to define how effective it is. And I know that sounds like a simple thing to say, but you'll notice a lot of organizations, and, and you may be sitting listening to this podcast as a CISO, and, and you've signed off budget for you know some new uh, private threat intel feeds, or you're, you're, you're growing your state of open source intelligence, and you feel like you might have coverage. And the answer is you don't. What you have is a great deal of, of data that's a product that you have to make sure you're putting a process around so that you're getting the outcomes you need. Um, and this is something you really have to shift the culture of the business to understand the threat intelligence is how do I segue? How do I combine it into my processes in terms of what I'm protecting and who I'm protecting it from? Absolutely, Richard. And you make a good point there. You know, one of the difficulty we have in security, and this is this is my own perception here, and please feel free to, to kind of interject if you think I'm wrong or maybe not, not quite hitting the mark. Um, 
we we work in an area where gaining intelligence on what's going on is extremely difficult. It's really, really tough. If you're in kind of an, a, an analyst role where you're spending a lot of time kind of delving around in various parts of the internet, you probably don't want to be delving around in on a, on a, as a general rule and infiltrating certain areas or, you know, being on the inside of incidents or, or things that are going on in the big wide world. Quite often finding sources of, of information that you can utilize is really, really difficult. And you're absolutely right, Richard, you know, there's a lot of organizations that have, they very much productize their, their intelligence. They, they, they don't want it going out. They don't want it getting out to anybody else. They, they, they hold on to it. And whilst it can work well for them, I think it's a bit of a detriment to the rest of, of the community because when you're a CISO and you're not running a, a, a say, a, a specific product that, that deals with intelligence or you're not part of, say, you know, as Josh is, you know, a, an environment where there's a SOC and, you know, analysis tools that working over a wide variety of clients, you don't get access really to that information. You get a lot of vendor stuff. You know, you get a lot of the marketing and we all seen that fun and games, you know, the moment GDPR came out in Europe, boom, everybody's product was going to fix GDPR and solve all your problems. When it comes to intelligence, you know, it, some of it is sensitive, obviously, but this is why I kind of liked um, what it was FireEye did when that solar winds issue kicked off. They were actually quite open when they said, you know, we've detected an incident. We don't know what it is at this moment in time, but we know that there's something serious going on. And then obviously, was like information came out after that. And we didn't get the usual kind of information from the company that had been breached. Well, we did actually. We, we, we kind of got the whole, we take the data and the, you know, whatever of our customers very, very seriously. But it's kind of laughable to, to say that when you've had a breach. Um, and then they were kind of blaming left, left and right over who, who did it. I think they tried to pin it on a student at one point. And we all know that that's complete. <sighs> rubbish in the grand scheme of things but what i liked specifically was was far i were quite open with what they were saying and i was quite surprised i think that that happened what do you guys think about uh, you know is it difficult yeah i think you know, to, be, to be fair threat intelligence and threat research is one of the more complex exercises that usually has your, your veteran analysts involved in it you know people who live and breathe that stuff um, and, and for a while and you know, Richard, there's a crazy connection that you set up with the SOC. That's actually where I began my life in Alert Logic, working in the Cardiff SOC. And you probably worked that out from the accent. But one of the things <laughs> that I really loved from working there was the fact that we had a global threat research team. So we've got about 150 analysts you know, across the different locations, about 50 security researchers. And having that, that connection, rather than being given, here's, here's a load of feeds that we've bought, or here even some pre-baked analytics that somebody wrote for us and said, you know, great, this is going to satisfy all your needs. We actually had the people who were creating these feeds and this threat intelligence and turn it into data and telemetry that we could use best as analysts that suited our customers and that suited the tooling that we had um, as well. And if there was an issue with it, we could go and speak to them. And there really is a, a bilateral relationship there where you know, they might even be testing things out and be asking us for feedback when it comes to things like threat hunting. It's where they set, they often set very broad parameters. They know it's not suitable for automation yet. And they ask the analysts to go and manually use that. Um, and then as we find things, we feed it back and they can start to get more and more targeted, see what worked and, and what didn't. So it's it's tricky. And like with you saying, I'm probably quite a privileged environment from coming from that kind of SOC, which has the, the, the full SOC analyst as well as dedicated threat researchers. 
often people are wearing multiple hats and you know, in, the, in the future, probably everybody will be a, a threat researcher and a SOC analyst. It's probably the, the ideal place to get to. But if you're not an organization that has that stuff, it can, can be quite difficult um, to, to make sense of the data that you have. And you know, there's often that, that analogy of the, the supermarket versus ready meal versus chef, the three kind of tiers of, of um, threat intelligence you can get, where you can just get the ingredients, you can get ready meals, or you can get a chef that puts it all together for you. Um, and so depending on, on who you are, you're going to find that one of those might be much more accessible to you. But yeah, there are people who can help you out with that. And there certainly are. You can't boil the ocean, but you can really focus in certain areas. What is the key threats to you? What are the use cases that you're worried about, the data you're worried about, and how what, what would make sense to research around that? Perhaps it's something like dark web monitoring and seeing if you pop up on any of the uh, initial access brokers lists if you're, you're really concerned about something like ransomware. On that point, why is it hard? Why is it difficult? Well, look, the industry isn't doing itself any favors, right? I mean, let's talk about Microsoft's latest figures. You know, they're saying we are trolling through 24 billion indicators of compromise on a monthly basis, right? And so you're sitting there as a SOC practitioner and you're probably breaking into a cold sweat about how on earth are you going to keep up with that level of data? And then if you go higher up the, the corporate chain as a CISO, you're thinking, well, it's possibly a lost cause. I can't, I can't consume that amount of data and then map it to my business. Well, actually, you can. If we talk about threat intelligence in the context of a business outcome, uh, you know, you're a decision maker, you're a practitioner, this is going to be important to understand. And you'll have heard about the threat intel model, right? So, you know, you, you, you kind of start as a business and you think in three different layers, right? Strategic, operational, tactical. And so the higher up the, the corporate chain you are, uh, the more strategic you're thinking. So you're looking at threat intelligence and you're saying something really important, right? What do I have that could be attacked, right? Um, and then who would attack what I have, right? You've got to do your homework on your type of business and the types of organizations you might uh, believe to, to be targeted by. Um, and then, you know, then you can go about the whole, which Intel feeds, which types of Intel are going to be important. So at a strategic level, you're kind of looking at that broad information. Uh, you might be referring to relevant groups. You might be looking at MITRE attack framework and deciding uh, which types of APT groups are known to target you if you're a financial or an educational institution or a healthcare or whatever it might be. Um, and then you're going to create some policies around it that says, I know I need this stuff. I need this MITRE framework protection. Um, and MITRE isn't the only one, right? There's NIST and there's the Diamond framework and so on and so forth. But you're making policy decisions on, I need threat intel, but I need to focus in these areas because I know these to be my risks. And then you move into the operational tier, which is kind of that mid-level details tier, right? Where now you're really focused on, okay, I know who's going to potentially hit me. So the threat intel I'm going to need is going to be based around the TTPs of those attackers, right? And then moving on from there, um, what other IOCs am I going to want to subscribe to um, that are going to give me the best potential coverage to reduce risk? Because at the end of the day, we're managing risk and, and, and we can't manage all risks. So, you know, we have to make some decisions of what we can't, you know, feasibly cover. And those operational layer decisions are kind of made by SOC managers. Uh, you should have a dedicated CTI team if you don't, or you're outsourcing that function to the likes of LetLogic or whatever. And then you get to the tactical level. And that's when you're getting into nitty gritty, right? What are those low level details I need to extract from the threat intel data? Um, and that's important, right? Because not a lot of businesses look at the intel they've got and then look at the components of that data that they get, right? So which feeds give me, you know, domains, which feeds give me uh, historical who is data, which feeds give me fully qualified domain names, which feeds give me the MD5, the SHA-1. 
you know, if you look at all the feeds you're subscribing to or want to subscribe to, test them, look at, look at where their gaps are, and then bring that back up that pyramid and say, well, strategically, we have a gap here. Let's go and find a Thread Intel feed source that will give us coverage on that. So that's, that's my approach to kind of how do you decide what coverage of Thread Intel you need. How you get there is something we'll talk about a little bit later, I hope, but um, hopefully that helps. Absolutely, yeah. Do you feel that we don't really collaborate as a community because of maybe the companies we work for productizing it? As you, again, sort of using that productizing sort of side of things. Do you feel that that, that we could be better at what we do? Um, I mean, I, I see a lot of intelligence coming out, business level of intelligence coming out of incidents that people have had and that kind of thing. And they really just don't use it. They don't objectively store it they don't objectively use it to then you know enrich their risk management but then you know as i said in between vendors and between the security community of of practitioners it's it's sometimes very difficult do you think we could do that better and if so how so at the beginning you asked do do we do we collaborate and do we share math with the security vendors? And I think we definitely do, and it's been getting better. Um, but it's, it's probably not enough. There are still too many people trying to keep some secret source back so they can you know shout about it in the media or maybe use it to to close some deals or something. So there's still that kind of capitalist drive. Um, but really, you know, this is this is a collective problem, um, you know, and you've seen collaboration initiatives that have been started at a governmental level, you know, the uh, the Joint Cyber Defence Collaborative with the UK, US, Australia, and other other governments. Um, you know, they, their, their mission statement, I was on the website um, the other day, and the top of it, it says, no one entity can secure cyberspace alone. I think that's a great kind of problem statement of what we're trying to achieve by the collaboration. Um, I've but, just figured that out then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it has been some time coming. But it, I mean, to see it come from the kind of government level, that stuff tends to trickle down. You know, you can see that the people are, are trying to do it there. Um, but for the most part, if you look at maybe emerging threats, that's a great example of where I think we are very good at sharing the intelligence that we have, you know, no matter who you are. Um, that, that's, you know, for those who, who might not be clear what I'm talking about, those are the kind of zero-day emerging threats that are, that are brand new novel. So the attackers love to use these because they capitalize on a window where you're not able to patch because there isn't one out, or it might be your trousers are down because you haven't hit your change window and be able to apply the patch. So they capitalize on that window where, where you're where vulnerable and tends to be multiple, multiple actors um, jump on this at once. So, and when nobody's really seen it, it's very difficult for people to write, write um, detections or write preventative rules. Um, again, another reason why it's successful. But that means the defenders are all scrabbling around looking how they can work to, to address this. And usually it all begins with somebody sharing a proof of concept, which is one tiny sliver of what this could be, knowing that attackers are going to make derivatives and evasions from it. But it's an excellent starting point. And as other organizations find an example of, oh, we've seen this actor and they exploited a slide like this and they released that piece, uh, you know, the TTP, the P, the procedure part, then everyone else can start to build these detections. But it is difficult to measure, right? You, you could have just take that, that proof of concept string I have a detection match against that. And you can tell your organization, your CEO, or whoever, yes, we have coverage for Log4J, for example. But do you really? Do you have you have coverage for one single element um, of, of Log4J, one type of exploit? So I think that, that's also the challenge that it's very difficult to measure what good threat intelligence is. And you know, like everything in security, there probably is no endpoint, but it's difficult to have a, a standardized way of saying, is this a great detection? Really, you need to take them all in. Like we said, you curate them. Um, Richard mentioned the MITRE attack framework. I think it's a great standardization that it's been great to see that 
that's be, being used by so many different organizations and users. Love to see something like that for threat intelligence as well. I think initiatives like MISP and like VirusTotal and some of the other open source platforms that are sharing are getting moving us closer towards something like that. Richard, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so, you know, I agree with Josh in so much that we're getting better. You know, 20, 22 years now in industry, I still think we're way below the mark in collaboration. Um, and, and there's been a couple of things driving that. You know, largely we can't control them as organizations. If a vulnerability is found in an application with Google and Microsoft or, you know, the, the, the big software providers, there tends to be this unwritten rule that you approach that vendor first, you give them a chance to kind of come out with, with the patch tech capabilities before you kind of get back to market and share that data with, with consumers. And, you know, and, and that can be a magnitude of days or weeks, and in some cases months, as we've learned in previous breaches, before you get that Intel data. We understand why, right? We don't want to be telling the market that there's all these breaches because we're going to play into the hands of the less sophisticated attackers or what used to be known as script kiddies that just want to capitalize on things. So you kind of have to see it as a protection mechanism. But actually, you know, there are ways to obfuscate IOCs that doesn't necessarily point fingers in a particular direction, but gives us the data we need to put in protect mechanisms that we might not have previously thought about. Log4j is a good example of this, right? We talked about that briefly. When that was released, within four days of the market release, there was an extra 5,000 IOCs, right? That was a great example of you know, industry collaborating together to make sure that the businesses and organizations were getting the data they needed to go and, and historically hunt on those IOCs to make sure they hadn't had any breach points. That's a great example of where the industry can work well to serve uh, the collaboration effort. But I think I'm still seeing too many silos, right? Um, you know, um, yeah. I've just mentioned one of them there. NCSC are doing some great things, but it's in silo. All the customers I go talk to, especially the finance houses, they're, they're the worst at this. They'll have their own internal threat intelligence fees that they'll only share with other finances. But actually, a lot of the data I've seen in those silos works across multiple industry vector, uh, verticals um, with threat factors that, that are, are seen across all customers. So we're, we're not really justice in the industry in the collaboration piece. I still think we're trying to be you know, better you know, than, than, than our neighbor and, and outcompete, you know, such and such vendor, when actually we really do need to start uh, thinking about uh, getting better at sharing things on GitHub more, more, more openly, more quickly, just because at the end of the day, we're all selling products and services that do great analysis and, and reporting functions, but they're only as good as the data they've got drawn into them to, to give you the protection mechanisms you need. So I think there's a lot of work still to be done, but, but we are making the right steps. So just to add to Richard's thing there, I think that you touched on you know, the, the people sharing this information or businesses wanting to share this information. But it's, it's the reason I feel that we're not quite there is it's not really altruistic when we're sharing this for some organizations. It's more of a, a flex, a look at us, we've done this. And so they share it in some sort of blog that, that are maybe even a, a, a PR news article, um, which, which makes everybody direct traffic to their website rather than you know, something like GitHub which, or, or a taxi or, or a stream or something like that, which can be easily consumed by everybody and actioned. Sorry to interject. I, I, I love the analogy of six degrees of Kevin Bacon, um, which is, <laughs> you know, it, 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 you know at least somebody in a chain of six people that knows Kevin Bacon, right? And I think, you know, the industry needs to understand you, you stop siloing your thread intel feeds because at the end of the day, 
it's six degrees separation. It's going to come back to one of the APT groups or one of the tech, techniques, tactics, procedures. You know, so we're not serving any purpose other than sort of competitive commercial value. That's just something we need to keep in the back of our heads. Why are we in this game? What are we doing it for? Um, you know, let's think about protecting the consumers and, and less about making ourselves look better in terms of market and, and all sorts of other analyst reviews. But that's just a small interjection. Absolutely. And I mean, some of the things that I've found is when it comes to like individuals, like professionals, like information security professionals, myself, you, Richard, Josh, Oliver, Stefania, and all the various different people we've had on this podcast, Claire and, and whatnot, you know, we're all very good at sharing information. Yeah, okay, you have to be a little bit careful about some of the some some aspects of it so you don't identify anybody specifically or any organization specifically. But as a as a community, we are very good at talking to one another. I mean, if if you were to pipe up Richard when after you'd seen something new that was kicking off on your LinkedIn and say, Oh, I've just noticed that there's some kind of new attack going off. Anybody got any information on it? I dare say you'd probably get, okay, private DMs, but you would definitely get some kind of information coming through of people saying, oh, I've seen something as well. You know, I've, I've been looking into this for the past three days. This is what I've discovered. You, you do have informal levels of intelligence collaboration, but I think part of the problem we're experiencing, and for right or for wrong, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not saying one way or the other. It's the organizations that, that people work for. They don't want to talk about the time they got the breach or the suspicion they've had that they've got a security vulnerability. They want to look strong. They want to look to the shareholders, to their customers. They've got to look like they're impenetrable. You mentioned like financial institutions being the worst for that. They're absolutely right. Every time I go into my local bank, they keep saying to me, why don't you use the app? And I just laugh at them. And I say to them, I do use the app for informational purposes, but anything that requires anything substantial that I need to send, monetary-wise or whatever, never am I going to do that via an application. You can you can lose that idea straight away. And then maybe I'm old school with that. I'm, you know, 25 years in the game, and I remember a time before the internet was even the internet. God, I'm showing my age now, aren't I? I think, you know, we are held back by the organizations we work for. I think if we... We need to find a way to be able to discuss breaches, vulnerabilities, problems in a way that don't necessarily implicate our organizations, whether that's something that exists out there or whether that's something that can be created without getting horrendous amounts of of people into trouble. Because, you know, again, you don't want to breach your own policies on data protection uh, internal sort of uh, data classification and, and whatnot, you know, information security policies that would prevent you from sharing information. But I don't know. Well, what are your thoughts? What you, the first point that you made was one that totally resonates that you know, security professionals are very good at sharing stuff. I still keep in touch with all the analysts that I used to work with. And you know, as, as we know, through the skill shortage, they have been to many other jobs since I worked with them and they've been all over the place, but picked up some really great experiences. And often we, we talk in a little group chat, you know, about what we've seen. If we see something interesting, some of them work for incident response people, some work for digital forensics. One of them is a, is a cybersecurity manager of an, one organization himself. And he, we get some really interesting insights from him from seeing that kind of full beginning to end cycle of, of an incident. 
But I think it's making sure that people are aware of why we, we share intelligence, why it's important. We've done a lot of talking about should we do it and, and how, how it's currently done and do we do enough. But I think that raising to the top that, that question of why it's important to share intelligence is, is really important because the more people understand that, I think the more willing we'll be to, to address it and start to share this with, in a much more altruistic way. Attackers are getting more and more sophisticated due to their ability to reinvest the, the funds that they get from their illicit actions. You know, ransomware is a great example of that, but it happens across the board. And we've seen from things like the Conti leaks just how sophisticated they're getting now, where they almost operate like a legitimate organization with a HR department requesting holiday. They have documentation to train up everybody. You know, and it's, it's quite scary to a certain extent to see how sophisticated they've got. And I think that is almost a consequence of the defenders being a bit more complacent and allowing them to get to that point, which is also why I see maybe that there's been a bit more of a pivot from people like you know the, the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative to realize, okay, this is not going to go away with the current way we're doing. Let's start to move forward in that direction. Because as they get more sophisticated, they get better at what they do. And so it's going to be a problem that will continue to snowball and snowball. And threat intelligence is really about enabling analysts and organizations to detect things quicker, and then ultimately respond to things quicker, which is some key metrics that you should measure any SOC by, because that means what is ultimately results in what's the impact to my organization. And you very well can come out stronger if you have good threat intelligence in place, catch it early, disrupt that kill chain, that attack, and then install the lessons learned. But rather than it being an embarrassing thing, something that should be swept under the carpet, James, you talked about some of the statements we've seen from large organizations where they blame an intern or, or someone like that. You know, you can, that smells suspicious to us straight away. And you know, there's a large social media organization who did something very similar, said that a DNS had just been turned off, which, you know, is, uh, doesn't really fathom belief. Um, so we need to get more comfortable with talking about it, that this doesn't have to necessarily be a negative experience. Um, it can be very much a positive experience, but if you try and brush it under the carpet, you know, people like us will understand that's what you're doing. And I don't think that it really buys any more confidence from your users or your, 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 your clients um, to read a statement that says, you know, we care about your data. This was just a mistake. It you know, won't happen again kind of thing. Tell us what happened. Tell us how, how you're remedying it and the positive steps you installed to make sure that next time this can't be an issue. And not only does that help people have more faith in you, but also it, it's sharing those lessons that you've learned because you know, attackers will replicate their techniques across as many organizations as possible. Mm. Unless you're talking nation-state APT, you're not going to have someone who develops a set of capabilities that is unique every single time. And mm. they're going to repeat themselves. And a lot of what we do in our SOC is, is activity clustering. So Richard mentioned the diamond model and we cluster these adversaries that we have, you know, have common traits and a lot of the parts of them evolve, but they're always core elements that we can fill in the gaps of that diamond model. And um, we see these actors time and time again. Um, and actually, it's really been really a fruitful exercise because as they change to something new and novel, we still have all the other pieces of the puzzle and we can go and find those, those novel elements. So we have started sharing that, but um, to be candid, I think it's still you know, I've been part of that effort and it is still a little bit of a flex rather than super, super consumable and altruistic. Uh, but hopefully it's, it's a stepping stone in the right direction you know, for our organization and, and for others. So to carry on um, and add some, some additional color to that, you know, tribal intelligence, I think, is, is a growing trend amongst cybersecurity professionals. And lonely, Ooh, I like that. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, good. And, and so let me give an example, right? So, so back when COVID-19 um, to a cold, uh, sorry, COVID in 2019, apologies. Um, 
Lisa Fort, who's a, somebody I have a great respect for, right? She's currently Red Goat Cybersecurity, but phenomenal in the industry security kind of leader, uh, created this group. Um, and she invited analysts from all around the world to help protect the NHS from you know, what was inevitably going to be a, a, a tsunami of phishing and, and ransomware attacks, right? Piggybacking off of the, you know, the fears of people around the COVID-19 pandemic. And they had some incredible outputs. So there were people from all over the world, different industry uh, experts with different skill sets from malware engineers to threat intelligence analysts and you name it. And, you know, without charge, right, showing what what sort of tribal intelligence can do um, actually help navigate the NHS through a very difficult period in, in their history and also from a cybersecurity perspective. Um, and we need to take a leaf out of that book, right, because... As um, businesses, and I'm not putting, I'm moving the conversation away from the vendors here. We, we know that vendors can and should get better, but as businesses, you know, if you're seeing things that are anomalous, if you're, if you have a cyber, you know, threat intelligence team, and you're following a, a well-oiled process, and you're finding things, share this data, get it out there to your mm. peers. You know, ask other people what they're seeing. You might just well protect, you know, a, a significant amount of the industry from causing a great deal of damage that may have a collateral effect on you as an organization or business. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I do think, you know, we need to start looking at this as something that uh, we should be advocating more, maybe supporting as well fiscally. Yeah, I think a lot of organizations could do well with kind of, you know, uh, you know, if you, you look at Bug, Bug Bounty, right? This is a, a great idea because it says, I want to use adversarial techniques to find weaknesses in my Apple structure, APIs and apps. Well, you know, let's build this swell of, of, of analysts and intelligence experts and build this tribe that want to do it for the greater good because, you know, the businesses at the end of the day rely on, on, on really high fidelity, uh, relevant threat intel information. Bringing it back to, you know, to, to the listeners, right? If you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, you know, I've got my threat intel covered. I, I've already looked at what I own and, and where it sits and who I need to protect it from. But then you've got to think about that, that process I talked about. And the, the intelligence cycle is something that if you're not aware of, um, you should be. And, and if you are, you know, do, do listen in a little bit more because uh, I want to expand on a few of the points briefly. You know, so intelligence cycle says, you know, I'm going I'm to plan and direct what it is I need to do. We talked about some of that earlier with what's the framework you're going to apply, why are you applying it. Um, the second part is what do I collect? And we touched on that a little bit also, right? So what feeds am I going to subscribe to? What coverage do they give me against the, the assets that I know that are going to be targeted by organization? And then you kind of get through this, this other two phases, which I think are vastly underserved, which is processing and exploitation, which leads into analysis and production. And what businesses need to be doing better with the threat intel is testing it against uh, uh, the, the, the data that they're trying to, to um, save, right? The data they're trying to protect. And that means, you know, getting your red teaming and blue teaming teams much, much more collaborative on looking at that threat intel and, and seeing if it is actually a value based upon the things they're trying to find coverage for. And then the final part of the intelligence cycle, which kind of wraps up this part, is dissemination of that data. And that comes back to the point, talk about collaboration. Don't just dis- disseminate what you found internally, right? You know, let's get it out there to your peers, to your partners, because if you've done all the hard work to protect yourself, you can, you can be pretty sure that other orgs are going to need that data 
Um, and mm. there's lots of ways to do it. You know, we talked about MISP as a great example. You know, GitHub is a phenomenal repository where we can just upload all sorts of Yara rule sets or data files that give us the protection we need. So th the platforms are out there to collaborate. Let's start using them, guys. Let's start protecting ourselves and using what I call tribal intelligence to our, to our advantage. It's interesting, actually, because, you know, maybe that is the answer. Maybe, maybe creation of a repository of, of intelligence, you know, intelligence that could have been, you know, fair enough sanitized to a certain extent, but funded by, by organizations, you know, for the, for the greater good of security. That would be fantastic. You know, if we could get a number of big organizations for nonprofit funding some kind of, of, repository of information. One of the things that I think companies miss out on quite a bit if they want to prove how secure they are, because let's face it, I, you know, a lot of them do, especially if they're in the service industry. Uh, and I agree with you, let's move away from the vendor side of things. They don't discuss their successes. They don't discuss, oh, you know, yeah, we've been attacked, we've analysed how we were attacked, and we've created a, an attack report. We've sanitized any details that, you know, that might be sensitive in it on specific systems and services and all the rest of it, but we've created an attack report. Just to, you know, for you guys out there, just in case you experience the same kind of attack, here's a data set that we experienced. And then maybe somebody else who's experienced it could then you know, either add to it or create their similar kind of report. Right, so this is what we're starting to see. These are the trends we're starting to see. I mean, Josh, Josh put it very, very well, and you've, you've, you've mentioned it a number of times, Richard, you know, you look for patterns of attack usually with intelligence. You don't look for specific things that are going on because a lot of these malicious actors are very good at um, you know adapting on the fly as they need to in order to to kind of get that compromise breach. Yes, they do create specific models of the way they work, which are, are quite a, a far far easier track. But a bit like pen testing, when whenever one, I have a, a an organisation that's asked us to pen test, sometimes they come to us and say well, what, what tests are you going to do? It's like, well, <laughs> so we could tell you some of the, you know, some of the, some of the methodologies that we use. Yeah. We don't know really what tests we're going to do until we're actually in there seeing what you've got, really. You know, we've got some information we can give, give to you on that one. But giving you a blow by blow, this test is going to be done, then this test is going to be done. We, we can't do that kind of thing. Here's the methodology. And, we, you know, if we could produce something similar for what we're seeing out there. And I mean, I, I've seen some great intelligence feeds from various different organizations on cracking groups, their specialities, individuals within the groups, those, the specialities of those individuals, common practices, that kind of thing. And Josh, you mentioned the Conti, you know, the Conti sort of leaks uh, from Krebs on security, I believe it was. Obviously, it wasn't from them, but they were the guys that... that Good source to read it. That, yeah, made it, made it easy for everybody to read. You know, that was... Brilliant intel because reading through those those Conti files and their chat logs and how they operate and how they work gives us as InfoSec people a real key insight into what we're dealing with. And, and Josh mentioned earlier on that it was quite frightening the way they worked as an organization. I mean, organized crime, as we well know, quite often the most successful uh, criminal gangs are the ones who operate just like an organization. The Yakuza were known for doing it. You know, they had a boss who was basically termed as the CEO, you know. <laughs> um, the uh, criminal gangs in London back in the day, many years ago, they operated very much like organizations, you know. And we're just seeing another iteration of that. But digital, only 
the pool of talent you can draw upon is extremely wide because it's it's digital. You, you can be anywhere. You could be in Brazil. You could be in Antarctic. You could be in Josh's back garden. You could be in the boot of Richard's car. It doesn't matter where you are. You know, you can you can build this group of individuals that can attack from pretty much anywhere. So I don't know. Maybe we should should we discuss the the, the successes. And what do you think about uh, some kind of central repository? Getting a few ideas now. I might have to speak to a few people. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll jump in there initially. First of all, to one of your previous points, right, uh, we do pen tests. How many organizations have you got into that, that seem to not understand the difference between a pen test and a vulnerability assessment? Um, you oh. know, uh, there's a lot of uneducation still to be done internally at businesses on that one. But anyway, um, so collaboration, right? Uh, so, so the Yara rules framework, right? What a great, what a great tool because it allows you to, to create classifications, identities, and malware. Um, you know, using a, a, a wonderful tool that can spread across any organization that adopts it, right? And it, 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 it's a great collaboration framework. You've got Sticks and Taxi that can plug you into any feed you like. You know, as long as it's supported, and, and it pretty much is now across the board. So we we have the platform, we have the infrastructure to share this data. I think the concern is that um, if we share it as, as a business, we're somehow showing a weakness in any times we suffer a breach, right? And, and that's one way of looking at it. But actually, to your point, James, stuff we are doing well, right? When we have reversed engineered, you know, Base64 encoded messages into our, you know, application front end, whatever it might be, and we found malware, you know, w- well-tuned, well-written, well-edited, you know, we want to share back out descriptions of that. We want to do it pretty quickly. Because to your point earlier, there may be other things you didn't consider in that potential breach that you'll find through this whole tribal approach to security intel. And so for me, I think this is something that can customers, that organizations really have to start thinking about adopting better. Um, and we're doing it in silos, right? As I said, financial organizations are great at talking to one another. They have their own threat intelligence sort of core feet. Um, same in manufacturing pharmaceuticals. But actually, if we take all the threats out there across all of these verticals, they're after a couple of things, right? It's, it's credentials. And then after credentials, they're after data. And then after the data, they exfil it. So, you know, whether you're a manufacturer or an airline, whether you're a finance or a, you know, a pharmaceutical, you're all going to get attacked in a very similar way. So why not share that data? Because you may end up saving yourself from a breach nightmare that you wouldn't normally seen had you shared your data more openly. So. So that's my, my view on it. Yeah. And, and just to almost de- devil's advocate, the, the, the reason people might not want to share, which I do hear a lot, you want to see when I talk to researchers, is they don't want to give away what they're using to actively track something or someone. You know, they feel that maybe if I am to share this out, it will become less valuable because the person who used those threats might be aware of them and might shift and evolve their, their capabilities. So a really good example of this is actually... Um, one of the the groups that we track, they have a very consistent um, crypto wallet that they use for all of their crypto mining and and any other you know, ransoms they might get. Yeah, you know, that so that means even if we don't have anything else, we can catch them on that last bit where we see where the crypto you know currency is being is being sent to and can work from there. You know, it's almost don't want to make people aware that here's once they see that exact string out there, they may be monitoring for that and they might be like, okay, now we need to make a new wallet. And so they might shift that and then we've lost something that's important to use. Um, but I totally, I, I, I may raise that point, but I don't agree that that is 
that is more supersedes the benefit that can be had. You know, if everybody starts to really share what the, the lessons they've learned, the successes they have, as you described, then what goes around will come around, you know, and everybody, and, and although the actors will start to evolve and change, the next people will, will catch them. The next organization might catch them and might share that information. And eventually it's going to come so unfeasible for them to evolve that quickly that they, they might, you know, be, be hamstringed or be forced to kind of pack up and do something else, as we have seen with some of the ransomware gangs declaring that they're moving away from that because it's quite simply, it's getting more and more difficult to get through the defenses and, and backups that people have now. And, and look, to that, to that point, and Josh, it's actually very valid, right? If I've if I ident- if I've identified a jump host or a, a a money extraction point, you know, that's the kind of intel that can be used to the advantage of the adversary. And I do agree, there has to be some level of of discernment on when or how you release that information. But you're right; it shouldn't be that fear shouldn't be the driver as to why we don't collaborate. Then I'd also say to those organisations that think that way, let's just. <laughs> If you just take one look at one of the uh, ex- exploit frameworks on the market today, right? And, and let's move away from Metasploit, although I think it's a great tool. There's, there's others out there. You know, I'll give you one example for those listening. Look, look at Silent Trinity as, as a great example of an, of, of an attack framework or an exploit framework. You've got to understand the level of automation these attacker groups have and, and the lack mm-hmm. of sophistication they need. So if they see that all of a sudden... You know their their jump host has been you know blacklisted or their domain has been blacklisted. They'll just run an Ansible script update and using DevOps will change it within a matter of seconds. Now crypto wallets are slightly harder to do, but so remember, even if you do identify and share it, and they do switch it, well, if you've got everybody out with the flashlights in the village, you know, looking for the lost dog, you're going to find it quicker than if you just hold the flashlight yourself and some coordinates to where it might be. And I know that's a very simple analogy, but it's it's kind of the way that we're operating at the moment. We need to, yeah, we need to think on a larger scale. But, but Josh raised a great point. That's why there's fear, because we don't want to reveal to the hacker what we know. But actually, I think it's a good thing, because it means they know that the, the game is up and, and you know the lane is narrowing and they're going to run out of runway. And, and hopefully that prevents people from, from, from breaching at the level they're doing. I'm not saying it will. It's probably happy thinking, but it's how I see it, at least over the last two decades. I mean, it's certainly going to be a positive step forward. It has to be. And one of the things I I wrote down when prepping for this was that attackers don't collaborate. You know, when we can, it's one of the advantages you might be able to have. And I thought about it a little bit more. And there are some scenarios where they collaborate, right, with like build your own ransomware, like the doctor ransomware stuff we saw and the international, the access brokers selling off access to the ransomware gangs. So it's not the blanket statement doesn't completely work, but it certainly is one of the advantages that we have um, as a security community against the adversaries, you know, they, they actually, if anything, compete. You know, one of the things that we often mm. see um, when they're, 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 it's very common there'll be multiple different adversaries on a vulnerable system at any one given time because if it's exposed and it's vulnerable, you know, people are scanning opportunists waiting for that. And so we see some of them, some of the most sophisticated ones, actually have kill scripts, which they deploy straight away, um, which kill off the access, the process IDs and other parts um, of other adversary groups, um, which is you know, very interesting in one aspect. You know, they want, this is ours, leave us alone. We want to have this ourselves. They may even patch the vulnerability that got them on there in the first place. Also very interesting for us because we can see we have all of a sudden been given this information by another attacker about all these other adversaries and can include that in our threat intelligence. But 
there doesn't need to be that same level of competition among the security community. So that is really one of these scenarios where it's a game of cat and mouse, and we are the cat, we're the mouse, but we're slightly behind. So we need to use the advantages that we can have. And I think this is probably the, the primary one that I see that, that leads us towards a, a better and a cleaner cyber future. James, one of the things we probably haven't touched on enough, which is one of the reticence behind Thread Intel um, and seeing it more well as a product than a process, is just the sheer amount of data, right? I, the industry used to always be about finding needle and haystacks, right? And I think we've actually flipped the problem on its head. We're finding too many needles in that haystack yeah. now, and we're overwhelming the analysts and the business and making decisions. And Actually, this, this is something Logic started. Um, the, the old vice president of Thread Intel, a guy called Will Semple, he came up with this great concept. And it was this ability to visualize and the entire attack chain. So if I had an IFC and it was an IP address or an FDQN, uh, which is a fully qualified domain name for those that may not know, but probably do, um, I could be able, I'd visually see how that linked to all of the different silos, both, both user accounts, applications, and endpoints. And actually, a picture paints, in this case in Thread Intel, a picture of a million different vectors. And you can very, you can much more quickly visualize things in the human brain than you can kind of trying to do it on a, on a line-by-line basis. And we know, right, psychologically, the human mind can only track seven things at once. You visualize it, you give the analyst the ability now to, to, to track hundreds, if not thousands of things simultaneously. And so I think with Thread Intel providers, and there are some doing this, We've got to get better at how we visualize the real roots of the problems and the context threat Intel is trying to provide so that we can get better answers and quickly. There's a lot of food for thought there. Um, yeah. I, I Intelligence back in the day when I first got in, weirdly enough, was a lot easier. There was a lot less sources to go to. Things were a lot less sophisticated. You know, if you had a piece of malware knocking around, you know, there was only a couple of places you could go. You, you, you could really go back then to find out what was going on. And, and there was a lot more information as to what was going on. But no, I, I, you know, Josh has just given me an idea for another podcast. Thank you, Josh. You'll be invited on that one. Uh, Look forward to but, it. <laughs> absolutely. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how we're going to crack this nut. Um, in conclusion, it's like that there's, there's, we've got su- such a wealth of data and so many tools available to us as security people compared to what we had even five, 10 years ago. You know, we've got so many different feeds, so much more intel. We've got so many more attacks occurring and they're attacking faster. I mean, Josh mentioned it and Richard, you've mentioned it too. I mean, you know, Richard, you were part of the, um, the criminal minds episode that we did where we talked, you know, about, criminal gangs and what they do and how they work and the rest of it. We need to start collaborating, in my opinion, far, far better as a community. And maybe we, you know, how we deal with the organizational issues that come with that, I don't know. To, to be able to help one another understand. It's like, if I need to know, say something about forensics, you know, I'm not a forensics expert. I have plenty of, plenty of people I know who are. And I will go to them and say, hey, guys, you know, could you, can you tell me a little bit about some of this forensic stuff? Um, if I want to learn about, you know, a bit more about pen testing, um, I, I know quite a bit about pen testing, but um, I will go to one of my guys, you know, who specialize in that area who know it far, far, far greater than I ever will, you know, because they do it day in, day out. We don't have, you know, if I was to, to, to turn around and say, look, guys, you know, we're, we're seeing some funny business going on at an organization, here's what we've, we've got. And I was to put that out, say, on, on LinkedIn or whatever. Christ, you'd get killed, wouldn't you? You know, <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing? 
you know, showing weakness, showing this, showing that. But I think this is what we need. We need as a, a security community who are able to talk to one another objectively without fear of reprisals from their, maybe, you know, their bosses, other organisations. Government organisations are still trying desperately to sanitise information going out, especially certain governments and big tech as well. You know, they're, they're, dare I say it, during, you know, during COVID, there were certain things we just couldn't talk about. Because if you try to talk about it on an open medium, boom, you get shut down, you get stuck for misinformation, whether you had a, a legitimate concern or not. As we all know, you know, some of the tools used by, by big tech to kind of understand, you know, to, 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 to sanitize information going around is not discriminatory. You could, you know, if you talk sarcastically, say on Facebook, you can get just as vilified as if you actually made a direct threat against someone. I don't know. In conclusion, where where do you think we should go from here? I mean, I love Richard's tribal collaboration. I think, you know, anybody out there wanting to do this kind of thing or getting any ideas, you should call it tribal tribal security collaboration and credit credit Richard on this one. Yeah, the, the tribal uh, intelligence. <laughs> let's do the tribal intelligence. Tribal framework. intelligence. There you go. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah, and it conj- you should patent that because it almost conjures up to me an, uh, this image of vigilante threat researchers and and, and, threat, and threat hunters and such. I've even got an idea for a logo. <laughs> maybe maybe it's what we maybe we start that that group up uh, us three. But no, I think you mentioned how you know, it's still quite a. a, a as a, almost a dirty thing to say. I think we have gotten better, but it's almost like we need that responsible disclosure framework where everyone can be comfortable. Here is a way for us all to start talking about this in a in a location that, that is standardised and makes sense because if you have to curate threat intelligence and content, there's nothing worse than trying to stitch together so many disparate sources that don't speak the same uh, language. But I think if we look back on, on where we've come from, there, you know, there used to be a dirty word for anybody who wasn't a security professional to say, compromise is inevitable. You're going to get compromised. You know, they, people would bury their hand, head in their hands. You'd be kicked out of room if you said that uh, you know, 10 years ago. Now, I think now that's, that's a core part of, of our messaging and lots of security messaging that you need to be prepared for that. So perhaps this is the next step that you know, now we know we need to be prepared for it. Now we kind of look at the levels of preparation that we can have um, and also accept that you know, we are now accepting compromise is inevitable. So why don't we accept that, oh, yeah, well, I was compromised, you know, but it doesn't have to be a bad thing. Unless you leave it for months and don't notice it, then it almost always is. Oh, about it. Yes. That old gem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, the will I will I be breached versus won't I? I I, can't, I heard this poem somewhere online recently. I think it was from the Sands Institute. It was the night before the next product's release, and all through the house, not an analyst was stirring until the malware breached the organisation. Um, and <laughs> I know it's a terrible poem. But it's it's such it's such a reflection of reality for all. So I've always said this. I'll always say it until the day I retire. Uh, is uh, the breach didn't happen when the attacker showed up, right? And and this is a very apt podcast because threat intelligence is is a, a significant weapon in your arsenal of weapons to prevent you being you know the next headline news. Um, because if you do get breached, it's how well you contain it and communicate that's important. Yeah. And so that kind of brings me back back to one of the final points, right? Measuring your threat intel feeds, right? We've already talked about knowing what you're protecting, who you're protecting it from, and the frameworks you can use to kind of get, 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 get those questions answered. And don't ask you all too many questions. Don't sit there and say, uh, you know, at a threat intel meeting, oh, Okay, so how are we going to defend against Russia and Chinese-based APT groups? That, that whole and logic expression has just 
personified the, 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 the problem-solving issue. Focus on one thing at a time. Focus on, on specific APT groups. Focus on particular application vulnerabilities. Solve that problem, right? And then move on to the next one. And before you know it, you've got one incredibly well-known framework. So, so assuming you've done that, um, and if you haven't done it and, and you're responsible for threat intelligence, please start doing it today. Then you've got to quantify and measure your threat feeds. And, and there's some things I always tell a lot of customers in, in my many years is your threat feed should pivot into higher order context, right? So I, I know there's lots of feeds that just give you lots of atomic indicators, as we call them, and that's great. But if, if they're not mapping back into good blog posts, good kind of security releases, then you know that can be a red flag. The other thing is, is the threat feed you're using focused on your industry or the threat you're trying to protect yourself from, okay? If they're not, then don't consume them, please, in, in my experience. And make sure the threat feeds have a very well-articulated understanding of the collection management framework, right? We talked a little bit about that earlier um, and how, the, how it's feeding that framework that you're trying to build a process around, right? We're not consuming products anymore. We're, we're trying to consume this data into a process. And the things that kind of you want to look for that are bad is if you're getting threat intel feeds that have RFC 1918 addresses, then you might want to ask your threat intel feed what's, what on earth's going on. Um, if they're not giving you any context behind info and the expectation is just plug this in at work, governor, you know, cheesy grin, two thumbs up, maybe mm-hmm. run a mile and ask more contextual questions. Um, and then the final point I, I want to I cover, I th- which I think is important to the listeners is the culture of your threat intelligence team. And, and this is the biggest mistake I think I've seen over the many breaches that I've investigated um, and over the many organizations I've sat in front of across many vendors, is you get your threat intel team, your, your, your threat intel organization, or your lead. It's typically one or two people in a business. And they align them to the SOC. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad place to put them, but ima- just think of the culture you're, you're building there. You're, you're, getting, you're getting two analysts that are very good at, at extracting the data point you need and applying it, and you're putting them into the SOC team. Well, all they're going to be focused on then is maniacal um, outcomes around malware hash signatures and IP addresses and, and all the, 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 what I call the tactical stuff in that pyramid I talked about earlier. Your threat intel team should sit at the highest level in the business it possibly can. The reason it should sit there is because you want them to be looking laterally and vertically not just focused on one point in the, in the problem curve that we're trying to solve. And if you put them as, for example, in alignment with the CISO org um, or the Global Information Security Team org, they're going to have to ask other questions, right? You know, necessity is the mother of all invention. If you ask better questions, you'll get better answers. So get your threat intel team higher up the, the corporate culture food chain so that they're actually looking beyond just particular SOC outcomes, looking at everything else, financial, HR, other risk. I think that would be a great takeaway if, if you haven't thought about your org structure and your org chart from a threat intel team perspective. Brilliant. Absolutely. Totally, totally agree. And I mean, a great note to finish this this podcast with. We're, we're just over the, the, the hour limit now. I think we've still got material to even talk about. Maybe we do a, maybe do a second one of these later on down the line when uh, we've had some thoughts to, to ferment on this subject matter. It's a big one. It is a big one. There's a lot more that we could go into. So thank you, Josh. Thank you, Richard. It's been an absolute pleasure having you guest on the podcast. Thank you very much for your input. Thank you. Really, really enjoyed the discussion and some stuff for myself to go and take back to my 
threat research leaders, actually. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and like, likewise, Josh, you've, you've said some really great stuff and it's, it's great to speak to a, a fellow alert logicer again. So, you know, uh, yeah. great, great to meet you and, and hopefully we'll get, get to meet face-to-face at some point on, on the circuit. Yeah, absolutely. I look forward to that. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy how I was able to indirectly benefit from that because it sounds like I came shortly after the SOC was set up. So um, <laughs> um, ships in the night, but I certainly benefited from a lot of the work that you did. I appreciate it. Well, there you go. See, security people collaborating and, and you know, providing Small one another with intelligence. This is what we're talking about. <laughs> so thank you to everybody out there for joining us. Plenty more content. I've already got two new, uh, new podcast ideas open from this simple conversation and this simple podcast we've had today. So thank you very much for watching, and we look forward to seeing you guys all again soon. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Rosewire podcast. If you like the podcast, if you love the podcast, please feel free to subscribe. And if you have any questions, please get in touch. Thank you very much and have a great day.